0: All right, today we're going to talk about discipline. Discipline, a very pleasant topic, and I mean that. Um, uh, By the time we are done, I think you're going to hopefully agree with that, or I will have failed, okay? There's a story told about a couple who had two boys, aged 8 and 10, who were excessively mischievous. They were always getting into trouble, and their parents knew that if there was trouble in town any kind of trouble that happened in town, their sons were probably involved. The boy's mother heard of a pastor in town who had been successful in disciplining children, so she asked if he would be willing to speak with her boys, and the pastor agreed. So the mother sent her eight-year-old first, and in the morning, with the older boy scheduled to see the pastor in the afternoon, so the pastor, who's a huge man with a booming voice, sits down with the eight-year-old boy. And he asks him sternly, where is God? The boy's mouth dropped open. He made no response. Sitting there with his mouth hanging open wide-eyed, so the pastor repeated the question in an even sterner tone, where is God? Again, the boy made no attempt to respond. So the pastor raised his voice even more and shook his finger and said, where is God? The boy screamed bolted from the room, ran home, dove into the closet, slammed the door, and hid in the back. When his older brother found him, he said, What happened? And the younger brother, gasping for breath, replied, We're in big trouble this time, dude. God is missing, and they think we did it. (laughs) Okay. Some of you can relate to that from a number of different levels. You know, Thomas Sowell, in a a book called A Conflict of of Visions, said that each new generation born is, in effect, an invasion of civilization by little barbarians who must be civilized before it's too late. It's biblical. He's not wrong. And our culture is largely failing in this Uh, mission in a spectacular way our call from scripture is to parent against that trend every baby arrives dead in their trespasses and sins they are incapable on their own to respond to the gospel or the truth of God you and I though are commanded to teach and train those same children the impossible or the seeming impossible to train and instruct them in righteousness and the fear of God, wisdom, obedience, repentance. We're taught we're um, instructed to teach all of that at a place when they're most at their most basic level, God tells us they're supposed to be unreceptive. So if you're struggling in the area of discipline, you're not alone. It's not easy. And maybe that on its basic level is why. Whether our children are saved or not, we are called to respond to the inevitability of disobedience. It's not an option. And that response to disobedience leads to discipline. But discipline is a subset of a very large topic, a much larger topic called discipleship. And um, relationship with your children matters. When it comes to training a child, a deep, loving relationship is imperative as a starting point for biblical discipline, and the effort to build that relationship compounds the effectiveness of discipline. So this morning, we need to start with discipleship. In order to get to discipline, there has to be a clear understanding and a commitment to the concept of discipleship. And what is discipleship? It's simply put, training. It is teaching. In discipleship, there is a teacher and a learner or a disciple. And parenting is the process of discipling your children, not as a group. Although that happens. If you have 12 children, you're not called to disciple a group of 12 children. Does anybody have 12 children, by the way? Okay. Just wanted to check. You are called to disciple and train to invest in, to build a loving relationship with 12 individual human beings. That's a very big, small group. Okay. Ephesians 6, verse 4, you've heard this. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Some versions of the Bible say you bring them up in the nurture and admonition Of the word. Those are very good translations. The discipline and nurture, those two words are very similar. Why? Because the same root word for discipline is the same root word for discipleship. So the discipline of the Lord means training and learning. Okay, not pain and suffering. That's not what discipline means. It means training and learning. The instruction literally means admonition. Admonition means warning. So we're called to train our children to teach them and to warn them. And it says the instruction of the Lord. That's a very important phrase. The the instruction of the Lord. The importance of that is that we aren't teaching them and training them our preferences, our politics, what we think. We're teaching them in the wisdom and the truth of who? God. And I know you know that. So some of this is reminder. This is to affirm you that if that is the direction you're coming from in your parenting, you are to be affirmed in that. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a verse that everybody probably has heard of before. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. You know that verse, right? There's two verses ahead of that that give particular weight and implication to you and I as parents. 2 Timothy 3.14 says, You, however, young Timothy, from Paul, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God. What Paul is reminding Timothy of is, remember what you know and who taught you. And it's clear earlier in the letters to Timothy that it was his mother and his grandmother, Eunice. And what Paul is saying is, they taught you the fear of God. Okay? And it came from the word of God. That's discipleship. And by the way, where it says in verse 15, from childhood, you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. I want to be clear. Wisdom does not save anybody. You are teaching your children the wisdom of God as a prelude and a process of leading them to who? Christ. Okay. The gospel is going to be pretty prominent this morning. And the word of God produces repentance. It produces righteousness in the way that in Ephesians 2 that starts off with you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And by the way, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, if you ever want to know how do I share the gospel, walk somebody through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's all there. It starts with depravity, inability to do anything, deadness. And it ends with that verse that you know, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, righteousness, training in righteousness. So you're teaching the fear of God, wisdom, obedience, and repentance, and you pray for their salvation. And what we're going to learn this morning is that as you discipline you are going to show your children the gospel. That's where we're going this morning. But the fear of God, the love of God is the starting point and the foundation for your training, your discipleship of your children. What about the fear of God? You've heard a lot about this. Proverbs sixteen six says, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for and by the fear of the Lord, by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. This is why, one of the reasons why you teach the fear of God. Proverbs nineteen twenty three: the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. There is great value in teaching the fear of God. And I'd love for you, if you would, to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I know you've heard this passage before. I just want to review this one more time. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, it draws a direct correlation between the fear of God, wisdom, wise living, and obedient living. And the first six verses of Deuteronomy 6 is pointed at you and me. That you and I must, as parents, fear God, love God, obey God. Simple, right? Well, the concept is simple. And it points at us and it says you are to teach the fear of God, the love of God, and obedience to God. You're not to teach behavior modification, you're reaching for the heart, for the the motivations. And then in verse 7, it describes for you, how do you teach that? How do you get to your children's heart? Don't you want to know that? It's right there, starting in verse 7, Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. You, having already yourself believed and lived in accordance with the fear of God, the wisdom of God, and obedience, now you shall teach them diligently. The first clue is diligently, constantly, regularly, faithfully, in every setting. You are to teach the fear, teach them diligently. Them meaning, what is the them? It's the principles of the fear of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God, obedience. Teach that. Teach those principles. Teach them. Teach your children those principles diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Is there any phase of life you can think of that doesn't fit in those buckets? Every phase of life is an opportunity to teach, to talk, not preach. Sometimes you have to preach, talk, interact with them, show them with your own life. So you talk when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up, and then it goes on verse eight, you shall bind them on a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. In other words, it's very personal. Verse eight is a very personal they see that you live what you say. And then verse nine says that everybody else sees it too. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Your neighbors should know who you are. They should know what you believe. And even through your own children, it's a high tall order Or to disciple our children in the fear of God, the wisdom of God, obeying God and repentance How do you do it? You talk to them. You teach them. Okay? With that as a really fast background, let's move now to discipline. Discipline is a mandatory element of that discipleship process. It's the process of intense correction, training, and restoration that is for the benefit of the child. Okay? Okay? As with everything else in parenting, the starting point matters and the end goal matters. Think about how your children, your child started life on this planet. Maybe they wanted to disobey, but could they? No. I've said this before. You lay a baby in the uh, bassinet, first day home from the hospital, and you say, stay. Stay. Now, I have no idea if there's ever been a baby on day one that wants to get up and leave, but can they? No, they're incapable of disobeying. Okay? They pretty quickly uh, transition to wanting to disobey and doing so, don't they? Okay? If you haven't experienced that, come talk to me afterwards. I (laughs) want to meet that child. As they make that transition, there is no fear of God and there is no wisdom, is there? And there might be some obedience, but there's definitely disobedience. Your discipline starts in that environment. And it's almost all at that stage, behavior modification, isn't it? Don't touch the stove. Don't run into the traffic. You understand what I'm saying? It's behavior modification. Very quickly, that transitions to, hopefully, to teaching and training in the fear of God, the wisdom of God, and obedience, or as a context for obedience. And there are parents who fail to make that transition. Think about this. If you're teaching behavior modification to your child in junior high, you have a lot of ground to pick up. And I want to show you from the Bible why that is. If you would, turn to Proverbs 9. Disciplining a fool, hear this carefully, disciplining a fool is frustrating, sad, contentious, and useless. It is counterproductive. Disciplining someone who is simultaneously being trained in the fear of God And the wisdom that comes from God is still frustrating, sad, and contentious at times, isn't it? You can say amen. We're at Grace Church, but you can say amen. But the difference is it's not useless. It is productive. It is effective. It bears fruit. It produces results. And Proverbs 9 gives us a great illustration. You're you're very familiar with verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Okay? Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, and wisdom demonstrates a fear of God. Let's look at the context. Verse 7. He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself, and he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. I'm going to stop there for a sec. The first part of verse 7. Verse 6 and the first part of, I'm sorry, verse 7 and the first part of verse 8 describes parenting a child who has not been trained in the fear and the wisdom of God. In the middle of verse 8, it turns. And this is my prayer for you, that you experience the reproving of a wise man, a son or a daughter. They will love you. You give instruction to a wise child, and they will still be wiser. And you teach a righteous man or a righteous child, and they will increase their learning. That is, again, and then it says, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to train a wise child? Teach them the fear of God. Don't teach them pithy sayings. Don't teach them the wisdom of the world. You teach them the fear of God. That is the beginning, and it produces the wisdom of God, and that is the soil that you want to till. That's the discipleship you do so that when time comes for discipline, you can reread verses 8 and 9, go back to it, understand that's your goal, that's what you're shooting for, and your efforts in discipline will still be difficult, will still be a challenge, there will still be conflict, but it will produce results. Unfortunately, some of you understand this verse from the standpoint of you have a child who is the scoffer. There is hope. It is, this is not a condemnation of you or your child. A rebellious child presents a hard dilemma. The parents want a quick solution sometimes when, the evidence, um, when there's evidence of a whole lot of groundwork that needs to be done. So the foundation of discipline is discipleship and relationship, teaching the fear of God. And and now I want to dive into the correction and the reproving and the discipline a little bit deeper. Let me tell you what biblical discipline is not. We're going to spend some time this morning seeing what biblical discipline is. But to draw the contrast, biblical discipline is not designed and does not have the purpose of inflicting injury or hurt. It's not retribution. It's not payback for your pain or your inconvenience. A child doesn't get disciplined for embarrassing you in the store. A child gets disciplined because of the sin that caused the embarrassment. Discipline is not the process to create little human beings that act like you, think like you, or serve you. When you say, where's the channel changer, they run and get it for you. Biblical discipline is not angry. It's not emotional. It's not war. Uh, Biblical discipline is not combat. And I say it that way because some of you grew up in homes where that's what it was. And we kind of have to flush all of that today because we're going to see how the Bible defines discipline. Biblical discipline is purposeful. It is purposeful. You must always be in the pursuit of a purpose. And we're going to show you this morning what that purpose is. If it is not in the pursuit of a biblical purpose, you must step back. Biblical discipline is for your child's good. It may not be convenient to you. It may not be fun. It requires sacrifice on your part. And that's by design. It's for your child's good. It is positive. Biblical discipline is positive. It's affirming. It's painful sometimes, but with a purpose. Biblical discipline, mom and dad, is work. It's not 30 seconds out of your day. It's not convenient. Sometimes it's not fun. It's work, and it's mandatory. Biblical discipline is mandatory in the family setting. Okay, so when is discipline necessary? Sin, obviously, right? When sin is committed, you have to deal with it against God, against parents, against siblings, against others. You're looking for opportunity. And obviously, discipline is necessary when safety is involved. We kind of talked about this. You need to be able to trust your child that when they start heading out onto Roscoe Boulevard and you say, stop, they'll do what? Stop. Stop. That's for their safety. Okay. So disobedience results in a break in relationship that has to be resolved. And let me walk through the cycle and we'll walk through this so many times today. Um, I think it'll be burned in your brain, but from your child's standpoint, here's the cycle. They sin. Um, Well, let me give you the parent's perspective first. You see sin, you intervene, you're going to stop the behavior, you're going to correct, you're going to train, you're going to teach, there's consequences. We'll dig into that a little bit. And based on that, there is forgiveness from the parent and a restoration of the relationship. Don't miss any of that. There's sin, there's intervention, there is forgiveness. Mom and dad, we need to be forgiving. We need to be forgivers. And the relationship is restored. In the life of your child, here's the cycle there's sin or disobedience, there's confession, articulation of the sin, there's a request for forgiveness. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have heard your child ask you for forgiveness? It should happen pretty commonly. There's a, that, that request for forgiveness, and then there's a restoration of the relationship, and then there's demonstrated repentance. And I want to walk you through that process from the Bible. There is sin, then there's confession, there's a request for forgiveness, there's a restoration of the relationship with mom and dad, And then there's a demonstration in their life of repentance. There's a lot of Sunday school terms in there. Let's break them down. By the way, what I just walked you through is the same as the gospel message. This is the process of being saved. Your children must be trained in the skill of confessing. Let's deal with confession and forgiveness. They must be trained in the skill of confessing their sin and asking for forgiveness. Someday when the Lord opens their eyes and softens their heart, it should be natural to them to understand that they need to confess their sins and ask for forgiveness, right? Confession is the articulation of a sin issue. Words matter. Eye contact. A child that says, I'm sorry, is on the right path, but he's not there yet. You need to know what are you sorry for. Confession is an articulation of the sin. And by the way, your four-year-old is not going to probably get here. Maybe. But you need to consider the application given the age of your, your children. Forgiveness requires humility. It requires experiencing grace. It's asking for something from whom you just sinned against. Sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? And by the way, teaching your children to ask for forgiveness requires an accurate identification from them, not only of what the sin issue is, but what else? Who they sinned against. Okay? So confession and forgiveness. Let me walk through a couple passages of the Bible to show you that I'm not just making this up. And I know you probably know that because I'm assuming many or most of you are saved. First John 1.9 says, if, you conf- if we confess our sins, there's confession, articulating the sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to what? Forgive us our sins. That's the forgiveness. That means to send away, let go, leave alone, walk away. The sin's done. It's over. Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a restored relationship. That is a picture of the discipline process. We understand forgiveness. I hope we're constantly in need of forgiveness. Psalm 32 one says, how blessed is he who whose transgression is what forgiven. Psalm 32 five. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity. I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 79 9 says, Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. That is the human condition. We need forgiveness. And it requires a humility to ask for that forgiveness and an accurate description and understanding of who I have sinned against. So let's talk about repentance. Repentance. When your child lies to you and you need to discipline them for telling that lie, when is the discipline process done? Have you ever thought about that? You know when the discipline process starts, right? When there's sin. When does it end? Well, the answer to that is when there is repentance. And that's why it's so important for us to understand repentance. So when a child lies to you, there's a discipline process. It begins. And when is it done? Well, there may be um, confession. There may be forgiveness. There may be restoration of the relationship, but the discipline process isn't over until you see that lying as a pattern of their life is gone because that's demonstrated Repentance. As a parent, I was always eager for the discipline process to end, aren't you? You know, our kids don't understand that, that we don't like this. In fact, some of us don't like it so much that we don't do it very much, which is a problem. But I was always anxious for the process to be done. It was tempting and easy to hear confession. I'm sorry I lied. Done. Move on stop the process there or to see an emotional sorrowful um, response and end it there, or to just change the subject on issues such as lying. It will likely be a series of intense episodes to complete that matter. Changed behavior is what ends the matter. If you're discipling your child and you're disciplining, you're looking for repentance. By the way, Regardless of repentance, the the relationship with your child must be restored. You cannot withhold relationship if there's a lack of repentance. And again, this corresponds to the gospel. You know the gospel. You know your story. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You understood and confessed. You asked for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins and you were restored to a right relationship with God for the very first time, you were saved. Confession demonstrated, your confession demonstrated with words, but your repentance is a heart changed by God and demonstrated with actions. Those actions don't restore the right relationship with God. They give evidence to it. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead, that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. Saved. Did you hear that? Confession. If you confess and believe, you're saved. The next verse goes on to say, for with a heart, the person believes, resulting in righteousness. That's repentance. And with the mouth, he what? confesses, resulting in salvation. Romans 10.10, in very concise terms, lays out exactly what I'm saying here, what I'm trying to help you understand, that in the discipline process, repentance is demonstrated by action. And when you see the pattern of someone's life change, then you know there is repentance. Repentance. We have to understand the difference between confession and repentance. All too often in our parenting, we hear a confession and we think it's over. And it's not. Confession can be easy. You can train your children to confess really easy. Repentance is hard because evidence of that repentance either backs up the words or the lack of evidence proves that the words were a lie, that they weren't really sorry. Confession is the articulation of sin or a wrong committed. Repentance is an abandonment of that sin. It is a change of mind and a change of direction. That is what you are shooting for. Repentance is a repudiation of the sin, a longing for forgiveness. It's a new direction. It's embracing the consequences not necessarily enjoying the consequences, but embracing them and saying this is what is right. It's an earnestness of restoration. It is making right what is wrong or the wrong committed. Teaching repentance is a primary goal of parenting and discipline. Repentance was foundational in your salvation. Repentance will also be foundational in your child's Salvation should the Lord call them. There's examples of biblical repentance. I highly recommend you read Psalm 32. I've already referenced some of that. Psalm 51 David has just been confronted by Nathan for adultery and murder. Hopefully, you haven't been dealing with those issues in your home yet. I mean, we're talking serious, serious sin. And to see David's response in Psalm 51, be gracious to me, wash me, purify me. That is embracing the consequences. I need this process. That's repentance. He says, heal the bones that you have broken. Restore me, create in me a clean heart, renew my spirit. That's repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, verses 7 through 12 um, paul 's writing back to the church at Corinth, who he um, had some very stern words for in his first letter, and he acknowledges their repentance, their indignation, their fear, their longing as it relates to the sin issue, the longing of of repentance, the zeal in avenging the wrong. You can read those. I highly recommend you read those passages, but turn with me to first Samuel fifteen I want you to see and to feel. An illustration of the failure to repent, because I think some of us in our parenting can relate to this. First Samuel 15. This is about Saul. Okay? King Saul. Verse three: Saul got some instructions. And I want you to hear this and see if you're confused by what God wants Saul to do. Go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Anybody confused as to what Saul was supposed to do? It's brutal, isn't it? It's pretty blunt. Verse 9. We're skipping over a lot and we're going to jump through this pretty quick. Saul And the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Compare verse 9 to verse 3, did Saul obey? He did not. It's pretty clear, isn't it? And what we're going to go through is there's a series of four confrontations by Samuel. And Saul's response to those confrontations. Okay? But before we get there, I want to show you verse 10, because some of you might relate to this. The word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. I just want you to know, Before I walk you through the story, the end of the story is Samuel was way more broken up over Saul's sin than Saul ever was. Do you ever feel like that as a parent? That you feel worse about your child's sin, and it's frustrating that you feel worse about it than they do. Well, you're not the only one. You're not the first one, but Samuel's faithful. He goes to um, um, Saul, and I'm not going to go through the things that Samuel said. I'm going to talk about. Um, what Saul said, verse 15, first response, Saul said, they brought them back from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. I didn't do it. It was who ever heard this in your house? They did it. Who can't defend themselves? They did it. But And he also basically says, we mostly obeyed. And it's important for you to note that partial obedience is what? It's disobedience. Good. Second time, Samuel talks to him some more. Verse 20, Saul's response, I did obey the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the People took some of the spoil, sheep, oxen, and the choices of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Is that repentance? It is not. I mostly obeyed. By the way, you all have smart kids. They'll run you through this, won't they? They'll confuse you. I did do what you said. Oh, you just didn't hear the second half of what I said? They know better. Verse 24, Saul's third response. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Done, right? How many of you have ever heard your children say, I have sinned? That's the end of the process, isn't it? Nope. I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. There is an honest confession. He articulates that he sinned. He articulates the sin He listened to the people. He didn't lead. He didn't obey. Verse 25, now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. I mean, I've taught this to parents of uh, teenagers before. And I always say, have you ever heard your teenagers say, I have sinned? They articulate the sin accurately. They ask for forgiveness and they say, let's go to church together. You've accomplished it, haven't you? Well, you have a restored relationship. But the discipline process is not done. You have not achieved repentance. Verse 26 But Samuel said to Saul, he immediately says, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. Saul gets emotional. And why would Samuel hear, I sinned, please forgive me, restore the relationship, and just reject Samuel, excuse me, reject Saul? It's because repentance has not been achieved. And you say, but it's all there. Let's keep going. Verse 30. Saul said, I have sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of my people, before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. He says it again, I did sin. And he desires for a restored relationship, and he's looking for reduced consequences. He knows that he's lost his kingdom. Saul confesses the sin. He expresses the need for forgiveness. He embraces the consequences, the loss of the kingdom. He restores the relationship with Samuel. He wants to go worship together, but he doesn't do the one thing that would have shown true repentance. The discipline of the Lord was not complete. Verse 32 Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. That is what Saul needed to do. To reverse the impact of his disobedience. What did God tell Saul to do in the first place? He... he um, agag to pieces it's an unpleasant story your junior high boys will love it by the way (laughs) it's in the bible that's what Saul needed to do then Samuel went to Ramah but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death for Samuel grieved over Saul and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel what a sad story I read that story to you because sometimes in our parenting process, we hear the confession of sin, the request for forgiveness, and, and um, a restored relationship, and we stop there. And I just want you to know biblically your goal, and that relationship should be restored, and you should encourage the fact that they know that and that they are there. But what you should then be looking for is a changed life, changed behavior. Proverbs 28, 13 ties all this together. Listen to this. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them. Confession is not the end of the road. Confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Forsake means repentance. And by the way, that compassion, that love and tender affection your child should find with you. Which is why anger... Is not a part of this. Repentance is not confession. It's not sorrow. It's not emotion. It's not words. It's not an apology. By the way, I don't have any idea what an apology means. Do you? Can anybody define what an apology is? I, you can probably define it, and I'll tell you there's five people in the room that would disagree with you. Apology needs to be stripped from your, your um, uh, language. It is a nebulous term that means nothing for a reason. It gives everybody the ability to separate themselves from the sin, from the process of confession um, and asking for forgiveness and repentance because it's, I apologized. It's not in the Bible. Okay? Okay and i i catch myself saying it all the time that somebody apologized i want you as parents to start thinking as you train your children what does that really mean it probably doesn't mean to your child what you think it means define these things in biblical terms so repentance is not an apology that's a thoroughly nebulous unbiblical term that means nothing Confession, sorrow, tears, and a desire for restored relationships are all possible elements and manifestations of repentance, but they do not prove repentance. In fact, those responses can hide the true heart condition. And to the extent somebody has these responses trained into them in response to a confrontation on sin, they can be viewed as repentant when their heart is as hard as stone. You teach your child that confession is the end of the process. They will learn how to confess well, won't they? But have they reached repentance? That is your goal as their discipler. Is to teach them that entire process and to bring them to um, the point of repentance. You don't want to be raising a Pharisee. A whitewashed wall filled with dead men's bones. You want to know their true heart. So the elements of true repentance is confession, state the sin. By the way, not, I'm sorry I made you mad, Dad. That's not confession. You need to stop. If you're not hearing clear confession of a sin issue, you have to stop the process. And a phrase like, I'm sorry I made you mad, stops the process. That's not why we're doing discipline right now. You don't discipline because they make you mad. And by the way, if they're saying, I'm sorry I made you mad, maybe you have to consider your response and whether you are mad. Okay? So it's accurate confession. It's changed behavior. Repentance is making right what's been wrong. Your child steals a candy bar. They take it back. Or they go back and they pay for it, just to use a, an extreme example. And it's a restored relationship where the family moves on. So how do you move them to repentance? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look at how the Bible describes the discipline of the Lord. How God disciplines us is how we are to discipline our children. I'm going to give you five principles to know whether the discipline that's happening in your home is biblical discipline. How do you move your children to repentance? What are the elements of biblical discipline? God's discipline of us is a model for how we discipline those children that he's given us. And I don't know if you've ever considered the elements of God's discipline of you and me. He is actively disciplining us. And we know that because he what? He loves us. First principle in Hebrews 12 biblical discipline is purposeful. It is purposeful. We're finally going to see now what is the purpose of discipline? Why are you doing it? And it's laid out very clearly. We tend to think of discipline in negative terms. Biblical discipline is positive in every sense. It's purposeful and it's positive. Biblical discipline is good. Let's look. First three verses gives context. It's a transition out of the, um, um, the hall of fame, if you will, at the end um, of Hebrews 11. The faith chapter. <laughs> Amazing stories. He rolls into ver- chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There is the purpose of discipline. Why do I say that? Because the first three verses of Hebrews 12 is laying the groundwork for what begins in Hebrews 4, which is, if your Bible has titles, probably says a father's discipline, doesn't it? And we're going to see that's exactly what it talks about. Verse 3 of Hebrews 12 For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. Verse 9 of Hebrews 12, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and what? Live. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. There's a big purpose of discipline. There is the purpose. It's for our good and it's to produce holiness. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Biblical dis- discipline results in the peaceful Not angry, not war, not conflict, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's all kinds of purposes laid out there that I went through really quickly. I want to focus just for a second on the word trained. Think of it this way. You don't want to throw your child into the game without being prepared for the game. You know, decades ago, I used to play football, and when I couldn't play it anymore, I coached it. And it was an amazing experience to take a bunch of kids who had never put pads or a helmet on before and to get them ready for that first Friday night to go on the field. I would have been a terrible coach if I let the guys just chase each other, sit in the shade, get some water. And when that first Friday night came, said, good luck, guys. No, we, we prepared them. We trained them. That is the purpose of discipline. You are preparing, you are training them for the game, if you will, for life. You're, you're trying to produce in them his holiness, his righteousness, peace, laying aside encumbrances. You want to eliminate the immaturities, the bad habits, the sin that so easily entangles your children. Why? Because that's what God does for you and I. You want to produce endurance, stamina. It's really sad to see a 20-something-year-old at work get corrected for something and completely fall apart. They've never, ever been told before that they did something wrong. That's extreme. But that's the stamina. That's the endurance that you want to produce in your children through discipline. Strength and courage. It says, don't grow weary and lose heart. Biblical discipline produces that strength and that courage, not confidence in their behavior or confidence that they're better than everybody else, but confidence in the purposes of God in their life. If this is not what you're trying to produce, then you have to step back and reconsider what's going on in your home. If this is what you're trying to produce, excel still more be encouraged you're on the right track is it easy no <laughs> emphatically no but you're on the right path you always want to think through the purpose and evaluate the effectiveness of your discipline accordingly are you producing a trained son or daughter are you seeing a move towards holiness and righteousness are you knocking away the rough spots The sin that so easily entangles them. Your children should hear you speak of the purpose of discipline in your own life. How often do you talk about how the Lord is disciplining you? And then to go back to the theme of discipleship, discipline is based in relationship with your child. A good relationship will produce effective discipline you are for them. Discipline is not for your benefit, it's for their benefit. Do they know that? Have you told them that? If you have, do they believe you? No. <laughs> will they? They will. They will understand that. Tell them anyway. You're training and preparing them for life. This is exciting. This is good. You know, in the hot days of summer, when I coached football, we kept reminding them of what happens on Friday night. The big game, under the lights. That gets a lot of guys through difficult practices. The same thing for your children. Remind them what's ahead, that you're preparing them, that what is ahead of them is good, and that, God willing, you're going to prepare them for that. Focus on the purpose. Biblical discipline is purposeful. Biblical discipline, second of all, is serious. It is serious. This is serious business. Biblical discipline is not emotional and it's not random. It's designed to deal with serious issues, sin, and to produce a serious result. Righteousness, maturity. Verse 4 of Hebrews 12, you have not, I've already read it, but let's look at this again. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And if you look at that term, striving against sin, I would hope and pray every one of you is in that battle. So is your child. Striving against sin is serious. And and you've forgotten, verse 5, the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Discipline is serious. It should not be a laughing matter. It should not be a flippant matter. It is serious. It's part of a bigger process. Go back to point one, verses one through three. And you can go back through Hebrews 12. And I know I'm kind of skipping the rocks through Hebrews 12 here. I really hope and pray, especially you dads, that you go back and reread and study Hebrews 12. And start leading your family in light of Hebrews 12 in the area of discipline. God has delegated this authority to you, mom and dad. Discipline. And that is serious. You know, if you observe a sinful pattern in your child, it's a great opportunity and it's imperative that you stop, that you talk, that you coordinate, you discuss, you pray, you plan. Sound like a war room? Sometimes the master bedroom is a war room. Kids are in bed, and you're talking through how do we address the sin issue. It's that serious. And once you come up with a plan, you implement it in light of the biblical principles of what is biblical discipline. And if you don't see results, you have to pull back. If you can't articulate the specific sin that's being addressed you're not probably ready to impose discipline be wary very wary (laughs) of disciplining for personality or preferences that's not biblical discipline that's something else but that's not biblical discipline biblical discipline is dealing with sin if your child can't articulate the sin and again, this is age appropriate. But think about this. If you're not there yet, if your child cannot accurately articulate the sin, then your discipline process is probably less effective and maybe even totally ineffective. They need to know what this process is about. Okay? So, biblical discipline. God's discipline of us is purposeful and it's serious. The third point is it's private. It's intimate. Let's look at Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5. Again, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as what? Sons, my what? Son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every what? Son, whom he receives. And live. There are 10 references in that short part of Hebrews 12 to the family relationships father, son, family. Biblical discipline is intimate, it's private. And by the way, these references to family are not from the standpoint of rank, it refers to a closeness, an intimacy, a transparency. And you know this is true from your own growing up years. And as you raise children, there is no place where sin and everything else is on clear display like it is at home. Discipline is a fact of life for everyone. From at least two sources, God and family. As is abundantly clear here in Hebrews 12. And discipline by parents, biblical discipline by parents, is a confirmation and a proof of familial love. If it isn't, if it's not understood, you're doing something wrong. It is in the context of love. You know, Deuteronomy 6 talks about parents and grandparents and home. There is no greater, more um, refining crucible for a young person than discipline in their home. And there's some applications to this. You need to know your children better than anybody else. That's discipleship. Your child should know that you love them. You need to say it and you need to mean it. And I know it's macho to not, men not to say you love your sons or you don't, or to tell your daughters that you love them. I'm here to tell you, please tell your children you love them. It, it compounds and, and greatly um, influ- greatens the influence of your discipline. Your children should also understand that you are the subject of discipline. I know I've already said this. It's an expected part of your life. It should be an expected part of their life. Discipline is normal in a family context. And the process of discipline should not be so significant every time that it absolutely paralyzes your child, where your child just loses self-control and melts down. Self-control applies to the discipline process. And some of that is controlling themselves, and some of that is not in the heat of the moment, but as you train your children to explain to them discipline is going to happen, you will be the subject of discipline, and it's for this purpose, and it's not the end of the world. In fact, it's for your good. No child probably ever wants discipline, but they do. They do. They'll never tell you that. And I say that on the authority of the Bible, completely comfortable with that, that it is an expression of love. Maybe not in the moment, but you know, you look back on your life to parents who disciplined you and you love them. I think back to professors. I had a, um, a philosophy professor in college who was so hard on me. And I loved her. She taught me so much. She challenged everything that I thought I believed. And I, by the way, everything I thought I believed was affirmed. I didn't sign off on her view of the world, but she was very hard on me. You, you have stories like that. Discipline is in the context of love. It's for your good. The relationship between sin and consequences shouldn't surprise your children. If it does, then the process needs to be explained and it needs to be consistently applied. Children should expect consequences. I remember when we would drive um, somewhere, we would prepare our children. We're going to a barbecue with six other families. Have fun. When we ask you to do something, please respond. And by the way, when we say it's time to go... Don't throw a tantrum. But we just want you to know in advance that if you do, or if you disobey, this is what's going to happen. Everybody understand that? Yes, repeat it back to me. Three little voices repeating it back to me. Not that I don't think they didn't understand, but I wanted them to articulate it. Why? Because when they melt down and disobey, it is just... You made that decision You knew going in what was going to happen Right It's a little story To maybe illustrate How the process should be in your home This is what's expected And if we don't live up To those expectations There's consequences And here they are And it's it's a decision you made Not me I wish you would have made a different decision Number four Biblical discipline is painful. Biblical discipline is painful. No pain, no gain. In a culture that says that pain is bad, the Bible says that pain is good. It's not fun. It's not enjoyable. It's not an end in and of itself, but a means to an end. It is necessary. It is biblical. Proverbs twenty two fifteen foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Proverbs twenty-three thirteen Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him uh, with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Serious stuff? Serious stuff. Proverbs twenty nine fifteen, the rod and reproof. Reproof is consequences of sin. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Hebrews twelve, verse five. Read it again. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint. Why would you faint? It's painful. Faint when you are reproved by him, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges. That scourge means plague, blight, curse. That is a very strong word. Biblical discipline sometimes is painful. He scourges every son whom he receives. Every son whom he receives. Verse 11 All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. But sorrowful. Discipline isn't pre- pleasant. It's not designed to be. And some of the pain comes from who's administering the discipline, doesn't it? Some of you have had children who are so broken up over the break in the relationship, you almost don't have to do anything else. And some of you are going, Where can I get one of those children? <laughs> but it's a broken relationship. Hebrews 12, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame, lame means broken, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The word strengthen means to set straight, to restore. How do you mend a broken bone? With an Advil? I always tell the story of my nephew who was a football player, and uh, one particular season, it was his last season, um, he threw a lot of touchdown passes, he handed off a football a lot of times, and other people got to score, but they got to the last game, and they were, had a very successful season. And I asked him if I could tell this story this morning. I asked his mother this morning if I could tell this story, and they said yes. But we get to the end of the season, and my sister calls me and calls, her, calls everybody else and says, the coach just called me. And he said, if the game's going well and we get close to the goal line, he's going to give us a signal so we can all go down to the sideline, stand on the goal line, and watch him score a touchdown. It's going to be a quarterback keeper, and he's going to get to score a touchdown. game went really well. We got the signal. We all go down to the sideline. We're at the goal line, and sure enough, he breaks around the side. There's nobody near him. He goes into the end zone untouched. Scores a touchdown. And we're going wild, and all of a sudden we hear snap, snap, two of them. And he's on the ground screaming. I mean, it was just like, what just happened? And the two bones in his lower leg had just broken. Nobody near him. So they pile him into the ambulance, take him to the hospital, of course, Family being what family is, we're all in the emergency room. And the doctor comes in and tells his mother, uh, we're going to have to reset those bones. And we can't really give him anesthesia because, uh, because he'd been drinking water and all kinds of other things, but we cannot wait to set these bones because of the nature of the break. So my sister threw herself over him and said, don't touch him. I'll take him home and give him Advil and he'll be fine. I'm glad some of you laughed. Some of you were looking at me like, really? (laughs) She confirmed for me this morning that's what she wanted to do, but is that what she did? Of course not. So then began the process of the doctor taking one bone and sliding them together and stopping and taking an x-ray. Not quite where it needs to be. Oh, I went too far. Slide it back. No anesthesia. Can you imagine? And that was one bone, and then it was time to do the second bone. Set the bone. Then take a picture once they've both been slid together and finding out are, are they completely lined up. Oh, we got to start over. It's painful to hear, isn't it? I hope so. That's what I was trying to achieve. <laughs> How do you mend a broken bone? You know, I read in in Psalm 32, or or excuse me, Psalm 51, a reference to a broken bone. It's here in Hebrews 12, um, setting the lame bone. That is the process of discipline. And so many times we parent um, in in the same way of my sister throwing herself over her son and saying, don't touch him, give him a painkiller and I'll take him home. It is not fun, is it? I can't imagine being a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. Anybody do that for a living in here? No? Setting bones on little kids or teenagers. Ignoring the broken bone is not virtuous. Giving painkillers when you need to reset the bone is not virtuous. That's not biblical discipline. Bringing pain should cause you pain. And by the way, if that doesn't cause you difficulty or pain, there's something wrong. It will be hard. It must be done. Okay? Pain is physical when they're young. I read those verses about the rod and and the physical pain. You need to understand that physical pain, the rod is used when they are young. And I'm always sad for parents who don't use that tool when they can. Because those parents always figure out as the child gets older, wow, this gets a whole lot harder now. The rod is a gift. It needs to be appropriate. But it's a gift and it's short. It is um, a short duration. Pain is not physical when they're older. You're dealing with separation, isolation, restrictions, all kinds of other things. A child... Um, whose sins must face consequences. And one of the great mysteries of life, small M mystery of life with older children is, how do you effectively match the consequences with the offense? Not for the sake of frustrating the child, but with the purpose of God in mind that you're trying to produce endurance, righteousness, holiness, peace, Repentance. We had a child who loved to be by herself. Go to your room was the best thing she could have heard. (laughs) You have children like that, too. That's why you're discipling not a group of children, but individual human beings. And you must know what gets to them. Again, not... um, uh, in an evil way, but for their good, for the effectiveness of your biblical discipline. But parents, we can't avoid the pain part of discipline for our own convenience. And another thing, you must, al- you don't have to do anything. I would encourage you to allow other people to do surgery. You know, I remember my children growing up here at Grace Church in the youth department at Grace Church. And these 20-year-old kids who were teaching, training, and discipling my daughters doing surgery. It's a great thing. It's part of the beauty and the benefit of the church. Is letting your children fall under the leadership and discipleship of other people who understand and, and who love them and who are for them. To help you in that process. Biblical discipline is painful. And lastly... Biblical discipline is brief. It's brief. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful yet to those who have been trained by it. Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You have a very few short years, To be involved in this process. At some point, you have to hand it over to the Lord, the discipline of the Lord. And within the time that you have, extended, prolonged periods of tension and conflict are not biblical. Grounded for a month is probably not biblical discipline. The cold shoulder or the no talk treatment is not biblical discipline. Biblical discipline is brief, it's intense, it's purposeful, and it's effective. Once the purpose has been achieved, it's over. Biblical discipline is brief in its process, but it's brief in terms of how much time you have to do this. Your children should know there's a discipline process at the right age Talk them through that process. There is sin. There is confession. There is um, a request for forgiveness. The relationship is restored, and we're looking for evidence of repentance. Your children should be able to articulate that. Then when they hear in high school someday, somebody presents the gospel to them. Because you can do it every day, but some cool 22-year-old will present it to them, and the skies will open up. (laughs) The sun comes out, and the angels come down from heaven. It's the first time they ever heard it, whether it's the gospel or something else. Embrace that, by the way. That's good. But you have laid the groundwork of the gospel message because not only have you said it to them, but there is a disciplined process in your home that lines up with the gospel. Because we're all sinners, we are all confessors, <laughs> assuming that you're saved is unhappy. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we're all sinners. We're all confessors. We all need to be needed to be restored with our creator. And by his grace, he restored us. And Romans ten ten 10 says that as a result of that, our lives changed. There was repentance. That didn't save us. It gave evidence to that restored relationship. Now, I'm, I'm done, but let me just say this. I know I've opened up, maybe for some of you, um, a hornet's nest even. A lot of questions. And um, I just want to encourage you that you're not alone. This is not an easy area. I haven't gone through... Um, except for get your kids' bones reset by an orthopedic surgeon, I haven't gone through methodology on this is how you do it. Because it is so dependent on your relationship with your children, who they are, where they're at. But I I think Hebrews 12 does give us basic principles that if you abide by those principles, trust the Lord, pray. And the other thing to remind you is If anyone lacks wisdom, let them ask of God who gives abundantly. And the second thing is the beginning of wisdom is go get wisdom. You have parents. There's people in the church. Be careful about friends. If they're trying to figure out how to parent a 14 year old like you are, be careful of that. But there are people in the church and around you who are a gift from God that you just need to ask. Can you help me think through this? Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for children. We thank you for the gift that they are. Lord, we are so grateful to you for such a great salvation. And Lord, that you don't leave it there, that you discipline each of us. And that as a model, your discipline shows us the way on discipline in our home. Lord, help us to be faithful, um, to follow the example of, of Christ. And, Lord, through our discipline, may we make the gospel abundantly clear. And, Lord, again, we pray, all the children represented in this room, we pray that you would save each and every one of them, if that's your will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.